Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Brothers and sisters, we, the last time we were here in the 11th chapter in the Gospel according to John, we'd worked our way through to verse 13, and my intention this afternoon is to carry on from where we left. And in fact, over the next two weeks, I hope that I'll be able to bring the next section to a close. That is, from John 1 through 16 in your Bibles, those two paragraphs, I'd like to bring those to a close over the next two weeks. Next week, I will take us back, though, to verse 12, because I've left something on the table there that I want to bring out next week. But that would be my intention. May the Lord give us grace. What we know thus far is this, that Jesus and his disciples are not in Judea, but rather they're on the western side of the Jordan River. They've gone over there because of the, of the Jews and the fury and the antagonism of the Jews that only recently had tried to stone our Lord. So he's taken his disciples and they've gone over to the western side of the Jordan River where they could find some, some safety, I guess, and serenity in the rural settings that is over the river. Now, I told you earlier in previous sermons, I believe there's probably two places where they could be. I'm I'm of the opinion that they're going to be probably half a day's journey from the Sea of Galilee to the north, which would make that about three and a half, maybe four days journey to Jerusalem, to Judea. And that's where Jesus is at the moment with his disciples. But they're not there long before they receive word. And that word comes by way of messenger from Mary and Martha, the the two sisters that Jesus loves dearly. And the message that came through was that Lazarus, the one whom you love, is ill. And yet when Jesus hears those words, he remains there two days longer. He doesn't move, and nor did the disciples compel him to move. They had no problem with Jesus remaining where he is, because they knew there was safety on the western side of the Jordan River. Had they crossed over, there may be some difficulty. They may be facing some harm. But it's not long after that, two days in fact, when Jesus now tells his disciples, now pack your bags. Now it's time for us to depart from where we are and head over to Bethany. And the disciples remind our Lord once again, say, Lord, I'm sure they said it in a friendly way, but with trepidation in their heart. Do you not remember that the Jews had just tried to kill you? And then Jesus instills some amazing peace and comfort to their soul by exalting the sovereignty of God and the fact that there is still work to be done. The sun is up and you ought to know the sun will not set until all the work that God has given me as the Messiah, Christ is saying, and you as my disciples would be done. You will not die, not even a moment earlier. So let's go. Let's go to the other side because Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, of course, the disciples were quite confused and we addressed that confusion the last time we were here in John chapter 11, what they thought sleep meant. And so Jesus now looks at the disciples and he says plainly and as plainly as one could be, Lazarus has died, he says. We're not told what the disciples' reaction to those words were. 
We know they'd known Lazarus. We know that he, he was a friend not only to Christ but also to the disciples, how intimate that friendship was. I don't know. We're not exactly told. But this is what they do know. This man that they once knew who was, had, had vibrant life, who was breathing, who was talking, who has activities, who was spending time with his family, doing whatever it is that Lazarus did, is no longer among them. He's no longer in the, in the realm of the living, but rather he has passed from the living into the realm of the dead. He succumbed to the grip of death. Death's long arm has reached Lazarus. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear of a person that I know who's departed, who's passed, who has died, memories seem to flood my mind if I'd known that person. The, the, the image of the, his face and the activities that we may have done together may, may come to me at that point. It's surreal, it's hard to take in that at one point this person that is vibrant and alive is no longer among us. You'll never hear his voice again. You'll never sit down and have a coffee with that person or have a meaningful discussion, at least not on this side of eternity. When I hear about death, it impacts me. I know how it impacts you. But it reminds me beyond that the person who has died has moved on. It reminds me of my own mortality. It reminds me that I'm not 10 foot tall and bulletproof, although some of us live as if we were. But rather, we all have our days that are numbered before the Lord. We won't go a day before the final day, the 12th hour that the Lord has given us, but every one of our days is numbered. And beloved brothers and sisters and friends, if the Lord tarries, every one of us in this room will experience death. We'll experience a separation from our loved ones in death. That is a reality. Death's long arm will reach everyone. How far does death's long arm reach? Well, it goes as far as the impact of sin. Because when sin came into the world, it brought in death with it. And so all of creation is subject to the corruption of sin. And so all of creation is subject to death. That's how far the arm, the long arm of death reaches it doesn't it doesn't discriminate it doesn't care if you're young or old it doesn't care if you're smart or not so smart. it doesn't care if you're rich or if you're poor if you're a slave or if you're a master if you're a male or you're a female it doesn't care about your position it doesn't care if you're a manager or if you're a servant it, it doesn't care the long arm of death will one day reach you and I if the Lord tarries. And when he does, it breaks in as an intruder, uninvited. It robs ones of their loved ones, of their friends, of their mothers, of their fathers, of their sisters, of their brothers, of their sons and daughters. It takes what's precious. It takes away from people what is dear and precious to them and it brings with it a sorrow and a grief that is second to none in the human experience. One day that person who is so precious and dear to you is with you and in the twinkle of an eye, no longer there. 
That's death. Death in a word is ugly. It's ugly. Death is not the norm, beloved. It's not the norm that we've just come to accept as, oh, this is the norm. Death is the enemy according to Scripture. It is the final enemy. And it's ugly. And it will spare no one. And yet the remarkable thing for me, and maybe it is for you also, is this. That although it spares no one, and there is certainty that every one of us will experience death, most of the population act as if that won't happen. You've heard it said in our society, that old adage, there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. Both certainties, they would say, both unavoidable, and yet the difference in people's attitudes between one and the other is like night and day. I think it would be a very good exercise for someone to do a survey to determine how much thought how much time and how much effort one puts into both of these certainties and compare it one to another. How much thought and effort and time one puts in, the average person puts in, into avoiding or diminishing or reducing the amount of taxes they pay and then on the other hand compare that with the amount of time someone puts in and the amount of effort someone puts in in contemplating death and what takes place after death. If we've had a discussion on death, you've often heard me say how amazing it is that our society has, has kicked it out of our thinking, diminished the thought of death. Unless it matches or meets their agenda, they have an agenda in it, they don't want you to think about, about death. Millions and millions of dollars are spent by businesses in marketing and in research of products that they could sell to a greater demographic. They would have greater market share in the, products that, in the products they develop and the products they make because the more percentage, the more income. Here we go. Here's something that has 100% mortality. The mortality rate is 100%. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you walked into a shopping center and walked down an aisle and saw caskets on sale at 30% off? You just don't see it. Do you think that the reason for this is because the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, has attempted to remove the certainty of death from people's minds? Perhaps, perhaps he does that because of what, of what comes next. It is appointed unto man to die once. And then... You know that word judgment is a terrifying word? Not simply because of what it is. We're all judged every day. You're judging me even right now. I'm sure the judgment you're judging me with is, I hope, gracious. But there are judgments we make. The reason why judgment is so terrifying, beloved brothers and sisters and friends, is because who the judge is. He's the one with eyes that peer into the soul, every nook and every cranny. There is nothing, there is absolutely nothing you can conceal from his all-seeing eye. And that is terrifying. Because the God of all the universe 
will be looking upon everything, every word, every action, every deed that you and I has ever done. And it will be all placed and laid open before him. Judgment is a very scary reality. And there's only two realities when judgment comes. Either you stand on your own and you say, I will, I will build my own defense before the God of the universe. And I can tell you that is set to fail. Or you stand and Christ is right alongside you. And he sees you with all the filth and the dirt and the sin and the wickedness that you've ever committed. But he says, Father, he's mine. She's mine. I died upon that cross. I've shed my blood for this. This is my sheep. They belong to me. And the Father's love upon the Son is bestowed upon the sheep of Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not some. Absolutely none. The question is, we're all going to stand one day before him. Will you stand on your own? Or have you now placed your trust in him and in him alone? It's not about doing things better. It's not about accomplishing better activities. It's not about any of that. It's simply about the one in whom you have trusted. Because, beloved brothers and sisters, the standard to get into heaven is absolute perfection. Unless you are as perfect as God himself, you don't get in. Put your hand up if you've come close. Only Christ in his absolute perfection can atone for your sins and mine and be your righteousness and mine. And that happens through faith in him and in him alone. But more on that in coming weeks. Lazarus right now is dead. How this has impacted the disciples, I'm not really sure. But there is something that must be playing on their minds right now. And it's to do with some misunderstandings and what Jesus has said to them that now has, has become a little clearer in their minds. Firstly, sleep. We discussed it the other week and I'm not going to go through it again. But, but they thought when Jesus was speaking about sleep, he was speaking about literal rest and let Lazarus rest. Surely if he sleeps enough hours, he'll wake up revived. But that's not the case because Jesus said that sleep or when he referred to sleep, he was referring to death, in fact. Okay. That's good and all. Now that's being cleared up. Thank you, Jesus. But we have a problem. What's the problem? What Jesus said back in verse 4. You remember what Jesus said back in verse 4? Jesus said that this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. But Lazarus is dead. Jesus has just said Lazarus is dead. We know our rabbi. We know our Lord will not lie. He's the epitome of all that is true. He is in fact the truth. He doesn't lie. So how do we reconcile that Jesus is saying or had said earlier that this will not lead, this illness will not lead to death. And yet now Jesus says plainly Lazarus has died. You know, it's very easy for us because we have the whole text before us. The disciples didn't. But simply said, when we addressed verse 4 previously, I did say to you that Jesus' words really mean that this will not end in death. That will not be the final outcome. Death will not be the final outcome for Lazarus. In other words, the final chapter of his book will not end in Lazarus dying upon this day and that's it. Mary and Martha grieving over him and in a few months they get over it. They try to get over the grief and then they move on with their life. That's not how this will end. But rather, Lazarus will die, but he'll also be resurrected from the dead. It will not end in his 
physical death. He will not, it will not end with him being placed in a tomb and his body remaining in the tomb until the resurrection, the final resurrection. This will not be the final separation from his family. Jesus is saying death will not have the last say for Lazarus. You see, what's taking place right now with Lazarus is actually a picture of what Jesus is going to teach his disciples, the Jews, all these people, and those who read these words some 2,000 years later. Because Jesus is teaching us something. He's teaching his disciples something. Because in our minds, we think death is the final blow. That's it. When someone dies, it's over. But Jesus in the beginning was saying it's like sleep. Because as I said previous week, when someone sleeps, the assumption is they're going to wake up from the sleep. We need to get that in our mind. Death is like sleep, both for the believer and the unbeliever. I'll explain the unbeliever next week, Lord willing. But that's what Jesus is saying. And this is what Jesus is going to come to say, that he is the resurrection and the life. In order for Jesus to be the resurrection, death must have taken place. And death, once it takes place, then Jesus will overcome death. He'll be victorious over death and he'll be the resurrected Savior. The one who is resurrected in incorruptible, imperishable life. Both divine and human And those who are united in Christ by faith enjoy also a life that is indestructible because it is sourced in the one who has put death to death once and for all. Jesus is teaching his disciples something tremendous and he's doing it one step at a time before he gives the finality of what he says as we move forward in the narrative. see, Jesus, Jesus knows that death was not God's intention when he created the world. It was under God's sovereignty, but it's not as though God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them and looked upon the creation of, from his hand and looked upon it and said, it is very good, and there was death there. There wasn't. Death is the consequence of sin. Adam sinned. And because Adam sinned, that is rebellion against God. That is disobedience against God. And with that disobedience, Adam, in his treason against the king of the universe, brought corruption. And that corruption and death has affected every man, woman, and child from Adam's loins. Death is the consequence of human sin and rebellion. And yet we're told in this text, in verse 14, as I said earlier, it is under the sovereign rule of God. We need to understand that. But we're told here that Jesus is glad that Lazarus has died. You might not see it in your... In many of our translations in our Bibles, and they do a very good job actually in expressing it, but in the original, it reads like this. Jesus plainly said... Verse 14, Lazarus has died and I rejoice for your sake. Lazarus has died and I rejoice for your sake. Is Jesus rejoicing because the one he loved has has died? Or is he rather rejoicing because death will not have the last say? And in fact, this death in particular is not without purpose. That even in death, God under his sovereign rule has a purpose and it's absolutely no different 
here. Death is not a rogue entity. And the one who had power over death, the devil, because that's what we're told in in Hebrews chapter 2, he's not a rogue autonomous entity doing as he pleases when he pleases. He's under the sovereignty of God. And even, even then, God accomplishes his purposes through the consequence of sin that is death. Death is not without purpose, beloved. Death is not without purpose. And the death of Lazarus is an example of this. It too is not without purpose. We were told back in verse 4 of one of the purposes, right? We were told of the overarching, the main purpose, the main objective of everything that is taking place now. Because Jesus said back then, this illness will not lead unto death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it, right? So what is the main purpose of everything that Jesus does, including this this whole narrative? What's the main purpose of everything that God does? What's the highest end? What's the chief end? What is the absolute greatest good? The absolute greatest good is the glory of God. You've got to remember that. The absolute good, the greatest end is the glory of God. But last time we were there in verse 4 through 6, I did tell you that at the same time, Where the greatest purpose is the glory of God. Every time God does anything for his own glory, which is the greatest good, there is a simultaneous truth that runs parallel with the glory of God. And that is, whatever he does is always for the good of his people. Every single time it's for the good of his people. And then we saw how that was for the girls, the Mary and Martha. It's because Jesus loved them that he didn't come when he heard. It's because Jesus loved them that he allowed Lazarus to die. It's because he was strengthening their faith. This was all part of his divine plan, according to his divine timing, so that he would strengthen the girl's faith in Jesus Christ. They would know him in a more intimate way. That the demonstration of, of God's power in his son, Jesus Christ, would be made known when Jesus comes there after four days in the grave four days in the tomb, and he raises him from the dead in power. This will strengthen the girls, no doubt. But there's another purpose that arises for us in the text in verse 14 and 15. You know what that purpose is? It was the faith of the girls before with the ultimate purpose being the glory of God. But here we're told it's faith of the disciples. You see that there? He's glad that he didn't go back to Bethany for their sake, right? For the, that they would believe. These are, these are the men that the Lord has handpicked. The men he picked to train and to strengthen and to teach and to uphold and to give them the knowledge from God in his teaching. That one day when Jesus does depart, when Jesus does die upon that cross, sheds his blood, is buried, and then he's rise from the dead, he remains for a short period, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. There, there he, he, he will then pour out his Holy Spirit upon these men, the eleven. One is a devil, you know him, Judas. They pour out his Holy Spirit and they become, they go from being disciples, learners, although they will continue to be learners, but then they become the sent out ones, the apostles of Christ, to go out into all the world proclaiming the good news of the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will turn the world upside down with the gospel, these 
11, with Paul 12, Matthias 13, I couldn't pronounce it. Men will turn the whole world upside down, not with swords, not with weapons, but rather with the word of God empowered by the spirit of God. These are the 12 men that Jesus is very, very concerned for. And here we're told he's concerned that they will believe. Another purpose for Lazarus to die and Jesus not to go and heal him when he was sick was the disciples. Now you may think when Jesus says these words that the disciples have no faith. Sounds like it, doesn't it? When Jesus says, I, I, I'm glad that you may believe. Does that mean Jesus is saying they don't have faith already? No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying that they will be strengthened in their faith because these disciples have already professed faith in Jesus Christ. They've already declared Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as the Son of God, as Messiah, as the Christ. They've already declared him as such. You remember Peter actually back in John chapter 6. To whom shall we go, they say? For you have the words to eternal life. Back in Matthew chapter 16, the declaration of Peter on behalf of the disciples that Jesus Christ is the Christ. He is the Messiah. How did he know? Jesus says to him, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You didn't hear it from men. It's the Father who has revealed that to you. This is genuine. They've come to know because the Father has taught their hearts Beloved, knowledge is beyond here facts in the mind. It needs to settle and soak into the soul. In the places where I've said it many times, that only the Father has, has access to. You don't have access to it, neither do I. He's the one who can place truth in our hearts. And they've been taught by the Father. The truth of the Son. These are men who did have, did have faith. But Jesus was concerned now to strengthen their faith. To increase their faith. Yes, they already had seen Jesus in his power in the various healings of so many different sicknesses, and their faith would have been increasing and growing as a process. Yes, they've also seen the power of God upon Christ Jesus in, in power over the dark forces, dark demons, and the principalities of darkness. When he cast out demons, they saw that, and their faith would have been strengthened. They've even seen Jesus raised from the dead. You remember, there's two occasions where our Lord already had raised people from the dead. Remember the ruler of the synagogue, Jarius, his daughter, and also the widow's son in Luke chapter 8. On both occasions, they saw Jesus race from the dead. But the difference there is both of those instances, both cases, the dead had just died. They hadn't been buried. Custom in Jew in the, in the early first century it was that they would bury on the same day, within 24 hours. They were both they were both there, and, and you know what the critics are going to say. They're going to say things like, no, they weren't dead. They were just sleeping. These are primitive people. Maybe they couldn't feel the heartbeat or the pulse. You hear them all the time. But here now, here now, Lazarus, four days in the tomb, body beginning to decompose. Oh, that's another story altogether. If you had dead on one category, this is a dead in another category altogether. He was, Lazarus was as about as dead as dead could be. All mouths will be silenced. Even the superstitious Jewish belief, which I'll explain a little bit later on, that would be silenced. There is no recourse. The critics will sit back in the corner and say, we can't say anything to this. And that would be a cause or a purpose of the Father through the Son to strengthen the faith of the disciples. 
And Christ rejoices that it happened. Christ rejoices that he didn't go and heal Lazarus, but rather that Lazarus is now dead so that this would all take place. That his disciples' faith will grow, that they would be sanctified, and that's why he is glad. You know when Jesus says he is glad, what makes Jesus glad? He's not haphazardly glad at anything. The scripture tells us Jesus, what's his main purpose? What is sole purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ? He came in the incarnation to do the will of the Father, to bring glory to the Father. His joy, he says, my food is to do the will of the Father. That's what delights the heart of the Lord. So now he's accomplishing the will of the Father because sanctifying these disciples, improving, strengthening their faith is the will of the Father. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, what is the will of God? Your sanctification. The Father, our brother read it this morning in Matthew chapter 5. The Father is glorified when you and I produce fruit. He's glorified when the tree actually produces fruit. That tree cannot produce fruit unless it is rooted in Christ Jesus, the true vine. And that rooting in Christ, the union in Christ, comes by faith in him. So it's important that the disciples are strengthened in their faith. It's important that you and I are strengthened in our faith. Because the stronger we are in our faith to the object of our faith, who is Christ, the more fruit we produce. Because it's his life flowing through you and in you. And this makes Jesus glad. He delights in strengthening the faith of his people. Beloved, we all agree on this and we have no qualms with this. But the next question I want to ask you is, at what cost? At what cost? When it's all said and done, the disciples' faith will be strengthened. We know that much. But let's just think about this for a moment. At what cost? What did Mary and Martha have to go through? Yeah, we know that Lazarus was known to the disciples, but we don't know how intimately, surely, they would have grieved. But nothing like the sisters. What did Mary and Martha have to go through in order for these disciples to be strengthened in this way? unimaginable grief and sorrow in order for Jesus to strengthen others it seems at their own expense can you see how that works do you think if they had come to know the, the details of what is taking place and at the moment they don't know I don't know if they get to know maybe Jesus sits down with them and speaks to them about this but do you think if they come to know the details, by the way, you're going to go through a time like never before. You're going to experience such hardship, such sorrow, such darkness, such despair in your heart, affliction, such pain as you've never experienced before. And by the way, one of the purposes for which you will experience this is for people other than yourself. That's a reality in this text. And so if they heard this, do you think maybe, maybe they would stand back and say, but wait a minute, that's not fair. How is it fair that I go through difficulty? 
How's it fair that I go through tribulation and this affliction and this unbearable pain? How's it fair I go through that for someone else? That would be an appropriate response if, if Mary and Martha had an individualistic mindset. That would be an appropriate response if Mary and Martha were only concerned for self. That would be an appropriate response from their lips. Because the individual and the one who is only concerned with self thinks, how does this all benefit me? I might go through some pain, but what is the gain in the end? That's what we're asking, right? That's what the natural person asks. If I go through the pain, tell me about the gain. But if the Lord has changed the hearts, if the Lord has made himself known to them, if they've had a true spiritual salvific encounter with Jesus Christ, they will no longer be individually minded, but kingdom minded. You see, the Lord, our, our Lord Jesus Christ is the example in this. He was selfless in all that he does and he cultivates that spirit in his people. That when they act, when they receive, it's not so much that they're thinking, what is in it for me? But rather, oh Lord, if you have brought that upon me, then help me to receive it with gladness and joy. The Lord only is able to uphold them by his strength, by his spirit, to accept from his hand all that comes their way, even if they don't fully understand it. Because he's the one who gives the heart and the soul the recognition that he is a good God and all that he does is good. He's a God that does all things well. You may not understand it right now, but if your heart is set upon him, and his glory above your own self, then you cannot but say, Lord, I, I don't understand it, but I know that you're good, and you're good in all your ways. Give me to endure it as Christ endured his suffering. When we considered the sisters, and I said to you there were two parallel truths, one, the sovereignty of God and, 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 and the glory of God being the ultimate purpose for everything he does. And I also said that, as I said earlier, the other truth which always accompanies it is the, um, the good of his people, that he, everything he does is purposed to be for the good of his people. Beloved brothers and sisters, I hope you remember I was very, very careful in pressing the point that the, sovereign, that the glory of God was paramount. You remember so the glory of God is the most important. It's the greatest ends. It is the highest good. And if you remember, I said, the glory of God is enough. It's enough. And, and Christ's heart was that everything he did was for the glory of God. His main concern was to bring honor and glory and splendor to the name of his Father. That his Father would be seen as all glorious and that is enough. And as disciples of Christ, our hearts, our purpose, every, for everything we do ought to be for the glory of God. And that ought to be absolutely enough. What motivates our heart is not the outcomes, but rather God and his glory. Because he's made himself known to us. 
We see that there's no greater end than Him to be glorified in His creation, amongst all that He has made, amongst His people, and even, even the heathen. That they would all see Him in His glory. And one day they will. But we want to see Him in, in His glory even now as we, as we live in this age and proclaim the good news of the gospel and are walking examples of what God can do with wretched, wicked sinners like us. We all agree with those words. I know you do. I've heard you pray and you've heard me pray also. It's how we encourage one another. I know I've heard you encourage me and I've encouraged you also. We always say we want to be instruments in the hands of the sovereign God that he would do with us as he pleases for his own glory. We say it all the time. But have you thought of through the implications? Because we know that Christians have been called to suffer. None of us here, I hope, denies that. Christians are called to suffer. We ought to have a theology of suffering, and I hope that we do. And passages like Romans chapter 5 show us that suffering is not without purpose. Romans chapter 5 tells us, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God love, God's love has poured, been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's at work. He's at work through Jesus Christ in the life of every individual who belongs to Christ, every sheep. His hand is upon them and, and the instrument he uses often to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. To see him in his glory and his splendor. The instrument he uses more often than not, he's actually suffering. He does. He uses suffering. We must have a, a theology of, of suffering. And we pray that we are the instrument in his hand, that he would use us as he sees fit for his glory. We pray that all the time. But have you thought through how he may use you as that instrument? Have you thought through the ways that he may use your life and your resources and your emotions? how he may use you for his own glory. I suspect too often that we may still have an individualistic mindset when it comes to these things. We may be thinking, what's in it for me? We may declare that we're concerned for his glory and that is the most, the greatest and the highest end. We may say these things. But do we really mean them? Let me explain. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We all know it, don't we? We probably know it by hand. Glorious text. It's given Christians so much assurance over the years. And we know, the apostle writes, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What a passage. We hold to these promises, don't we? These promises, they strengthen us. And as we should, God's promises are meant to be apprehended. They're meant to be consumed by his people, believed upon. That we ought to be receiving comfort and rest to our souls from them. But it could it be, even when we apprehend a promise like this, 
That we're even self-centered in that apprehension? Could it be that when we receive a promise like this, that we're more concerned with the outcome rather than the kingdom of God, rather than the glory of God? Could we applying this promise that we have in Romans chapter 8 and applying it to us with only the concern that things work out well for me without the concern of how God is honored and glorified in my life? Brothers, I've used this verse countless times to encourage your souls and the souls of believers. It's encouraged my soul so many times. But are we encouraging one another? By saying, don't worry, things are going to work out well for you. Rather than saying, don't worry, things will work out because of whom you trust in. The object of your faith. Not the outcomes. If we're thinking, it's okay, things are going to turn out well. And we're finding rest and joy and comfort in that. What have we done with God? What have we done with the author and the perfecter of our faith? What have we done with the object of our faith? The God of all the universe, ought not it be that His glory is paramount above all things? Even if the outcomes, as far as we understand them, might not align with how we think things should be done. Even if we are to suffer for the sake of others. Mary and Martha in our narrative are, are weeping over their lost beloved. No doubt their hearts feel like they've been wrenched from their places. Sorrow, sadness, anguish, you name it. They think they're never going to see their brother again. I've already spoken to that, so I won't go back there again. But listen to me. Unbeknown to them, one of the reasons for their suffering, hear this. This is not incidental. This is according to the sovereign decree of God from eternity past. One of the reasons for their suffering is not their own sanctification, but the sanctification of the disciples. They will be sanctified through the process. But one of the reasons that God has allowed for this to take place is so that Christ would make known in a greater way his glory, his power to strengthen the faith of the disciples. It may be those they know that will be impacted and it may actually be those that they'll never meet. It may be actually pleasing God that they would go through indescribable pain and suffering for the sake of complete strangers even. Is that fair? When we ask that we want to be a vessel in his hand used for his glory, are we willing to be used by him in any which way he pleases? Oh, this confronted my spirit this morning. Are we willing to be used so the ultimate outcome is to the praise of his glorious grace? Are we always thinking about the final outcome for ourselves? Have you ever thought of your suffering being the means that the great potter of the play may use, the great, great potter of the clay may use to strengthen others, maybe even some that you may never get to know or meet? 
These are actually very difficult concepts to think through. But it really has to, we have to as Christians think these things through. Because often we claim the promises that are in God's word and what we're doing is we're finding rest or comfort in the outcome for me rather than finding rest and comfort in the God of the universe who has loved me and has sent his son to die for me. We find rest and comfort merely in the promise rather than finding rest and comfort in the one who has uttered the promise. Beloved brothers and sisters, I know sometimes it's difficult to think these things through, but our joy, our comfort, our rest, our security is beyond being in words but in the one who has spoken those words because he's the faithful and just. He's the faithful and true. He's the one who speaks and keeps his words no matter what. Could it be that fall that you fell or that trip to the hospital or the surgery that had you bedridden for days or weeks or even the illness or the ailments that you carry even now, that sort of suffering the difficulties that you are going through even now with your relationships, your marriages or whatever it is, could it be the emotional pain, the physical pain that you're going through even now, even the loss of someone? Could it be that the Lord has allowed for you to go through that difficulty, that suffering for the good of others? Have you ever thought of it that way? Or you so, maybe you're just so selfish. I know I am. I derive rest in many of the promises of God and we are to do that. But often I derive the satisfaction, the rest, because it he, because he gives me benefit. Rather than saying, oh, that you would be honored. Oh, that you would be glorified no matter what happens to me. I've read books where people say, even if you sent me to hell, do so, but be glorified. I can't understand those words. But could there be truth in those words? That above all things, may he be honored. May he be glorified. That I've come to know, my eyes have been opened to who he is in Christ Jesus. And in his tremendous wonder and beauty and magnificence, may it be he that is honored. And it matters not what happens my way. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the fact that God may be using you and allowing suffering to come your way for the benefit of others. Are, are you prepared? Look left. Look right. Look behind you. Are you prepared to suffer for these people who are around you? Are you prepared to say, Lord, if it means that you put me through hardship, but my brother becomes closer to you, bring it on. If it means that you put me through hardship, but, but that person that I know who's not in Christ comes to see Christ in all his glory and splendor, Lord, bring it on. If, if it means that I've got to go through suffering and hardship and pain, that you would be glorified, that more knees will bend their knee, more people will bend their knee to you because you're worthy and you are the God of all the universe. Make yourself known to me. No one else is worthy. Lord, bring it on. I speak as a preacher who knows what we should desire, but I don't necessarily desire those things as I say them. Because I know my weakness. And I know I want to desire, I want these things, I desire these things. But I've got a long way to go. A long way to go. But that's the work that he does in us, beloved. 
That's the work that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to do in you and in I. Are you willing? Are you willing to do all things and to be used by him as an instrument for his glory and nothing else will do? Without thinking of the benefits that come back to you, but simply, oh, that you would be honored. Oh, that you would be glorified. You see, we don't really need to think about those benefits because the one who we trust. Because his promises are he's got us safe and secure in his hands. We know that all good things, think all things work out for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. We know we can rest in that. So can we now pursue his glory? Can we pursue what brings glory and wonder and upholds and exalts his holy name? The Apostle Paul calls these things and he calls his experiences as being poured out like a drink offering for, for the sake of others. You've, you've heard him say that. He says it. He said it on many occasions, and beloved brothers and sisters, the only way any of us can desire these things truly is that if we come to know him and to know his love for us and to know that we've been forgiven of our sins through Christ Jesus. That's the only way. The only way is for us to actually have had a meaningful, spiritual, salvific encounter with the living God through Christ Jesus and have come to know him and his love for wretched sinners like us. It is, we're told in First John, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, unless we've come to recognize that our sins have been forgiven, that our filth has been taken away, that our iniquity has been placed, nailed to the cross, and now I've received forgiveness from his hand. Unless I've come to know Christ as the one who shed his blood and bore the wrath on my behalf, I cannot desire these things. We must be able to recognize his love for us as the resurrected Savior. If we have any hope of actually being willing to suffer for the sake of others because the flesh is still abiding within us and we are still selfish beings o open with me um, second corinthians chapter 8 second corinthians my apologies second corinthians chapter 1 from verse 8 through 11 verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle Paul, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us again uh, and will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he delivers us again now i'm speaking about suffering for the sake of others but it seems to me and probably to you as we read this text 
that the suffering of the Apostle Paul was of great benefit to himself. Doesn't it? Is that, is that right? When he says here that it was not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, he delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. The Apostle Paul is strengthened through the suffering. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The Apostle is saying, I know that he'll deliver us again. I've gone through suffering and the benefit is he's grown my faith. He's, he's, he's deepened my love and my hope in him. And I know he'll deliver us again. So how is it the Apostle Paul suffering is for the sake of others? Beloved, have you read this passage and derived comfort from it? How many Christians in the ages have actually read this text and derived immense, immeasurable comfort from the God who has given the Apostle Paul and his companions the blessing of knowing that he can be relied upon, that he is the deliverer. If the Apostle Paul didn't go through this experience, we would not have it in the text of our scripture. Apostle Paul's suffering was not only for his sake. It wasn't only for his sanctification. It wasn't only for him to deepen his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the suffering of the Apostle Paul was for you and I even now. It's incredible how the Lord works. He says to the church at Philippi, even as I'm even um, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also to be glad and rejoice with me. He, he is acknowledging that the Lord is pouring him out. He's, he's sacrificing his life, not for his sake, but for the sake of others. And he finds joy in that. But he's the one that might blow your mind. And we spoke about it with a couple of men at the barbecue yesterday. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Here the Apostle Paul in the first few verses, you know the text. It's a text that's blown the mind of Christians throughout the ages. He says he wished he was accursed himself, that he would be cut off from Christ. For the sake of his kinsmen, according to the flesh. But beloved brothers and sisters, what's the Apostle Paul saying here? What sort of love is he expressing? Could you say the same words in good conscience? That he wishes he was accursed, cut off from Christ for his kinsmen, according to the flesh? Is the Apostle Paul saying what I think he's saying? That, that he would even receive eternal damnation of his soul if the Lord would save his people, the Jews. Is the Apostle Paul thinking about the outcome here? Is he actually thinking about what is in it for me? How can someone speak this way? How could someone desire these words? Well, it comes because of what is written just before those words. They're the first few words of chapter 9. There's no chapter breaks. Look at what he says in the last paragraph of chapter, chapter 8. From verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I, this is the Apostle Paul, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a man who's experienced the love of God. This is a man who can love others because God has poured out his love by his Holy Spirit into his heart. This is a man who's encountered Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers through faith in him by his grace and by his grace alone. That the love of God has so filled him and overflowed his heart that he's able to say, Oh, that you would save my, my kinsmen, the Jews. Even if it means it comes at the behest or the expense of me being accursed, of me being cut off from Christ. But be glorified. Because now I've come to know who you are. And nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. But it's Christ who is the real example. It's Jesus who's the champion of suffering. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22 with the disciples in the upper room when on the night he was betrayed, it's Christ who says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is his blood that was poured out. The son of God, the one who knew no sin, the one who's eternally in existence, who needs no one. His life is not contingent upon himself. Fully satisfied as the God of the universe would come into this world and would lay, lay down his life to pour out his life upon that cross for, for his people. To establish a brand new covenant, a covenant in his, in his own blood. If anyone knew what suffering on behalf of others was, it is Christ. And he did it for the glory of of God and for the love of his people. He's our example in suffering, First Peter 2 tells us. But even though he was reviled, he didn't revile, but he entrusted himself fully to God himself. Look, we need to have a theology of suffering. We need to understand that it will come our way. We need to understand that God has decreed in eternity past that you and I suffer. Sometimes we think that suffering is purely that we would be sanctified, that we, our faith will be deepened and strengthened, and it is for those, for those purposes. Ultimately, for the glory of God, because there's no great, greater or higher end. And every time you suffer, I can say, stand upon the word of God and say, it is for your own good. It is for your own good. You will grow by His grace if His Spirit is at work in you into the likeness of Jesus Christ, but He may also have another purpose for your suffering. And it may be that the person sitting next to you may see your life and desire Him. It may be to put you in a position that apart from that suffering, you would not have had a chance to sit down and speak to that person and proclaim the goodness of His grace. Maybe even that unless you suffered in that way, those around you, even in the church, would not have had the opportunity to see how he's faithful even upon his own people and then desire to be, as the Apostle Paul says, imitators of him as he imitates Christ. Look, we don't know. And this is not a call for you to speculate. 
this is not a call for you to think about all the possibilities of the things that have happened in your life and all the calamities and the car accidents and the falls and the times you're in the This is not that at all. That would be, that, that's pagan. We don't want to think that way. But all I'm saying is this. Have you entrusted your life fully and totally in the hands of Jesus Christ? And are you receiving whatever comes your way, even difficulty and affliction, even suffering and pain, even tribulation, whatever that looks like, are you receiving it from his hand, not asking the question, why am I going through this? This is not fair, but rather, you're the good God of the universe, made your love known to me through Christ Jesus. I've entrusted my life to your hands. Whatever comes my way, help me, empower me, uphold me to receive those things with gladness. Let me end with this. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. I've spoken a lot about the Apostle Paul, and I can't end there. I have to end with what Christ has done for us. So Isaiah 53 from verse 1. Together we'll read the whole chapter together. It's not long. It's only 12 verses, and then we'll close with that. Because the suffering of Christ ought to be on the forefront of our mind. If we're going to learn to suffer, we need to look at the one who's the author and the perfecter of our faith who teaches us how to suffer. Isaiah 53, from verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant... And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that he the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of being stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And it was, hear this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Remember Gethsemane? You remember the prayer of the Lord? Would you remove this cup, this bitter cup from me, but not as I will, but let your will be done? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. No greater cause in his heart than to please the Father and to accomplish his will. And so willingly he lay down his life. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray.